This is a word fitly spoken. My words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Willie Grills, here as always with Reverend Zell and Heidi. Today we're going to be talking about divine providence. So, Zellwin, first things first, how are things going? Are things thawing out up there? Actually, it's been pretty warm. I was working outside today, and I think I'm actually starting to get a sunburn. So it goes from blistering cold to blistering hot out in this part of the world. Very nice. Very nice. Builds character, builds strong men. And then some, yeah. I mean, (laughs) especially I was doing some roofing work, and yeah, it was... It's always fun to be up on top of a roof when it's like 70 or 80 degrees out, but eh, it's all good. For our listeners, we should know that Zelwyn takes the old adage, idle hands are the devil's handiwork at a heart. So that's why he's he's roofing here um, on these (laughs) warm days. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, you do what you can. But I'm look. This is a a good topic that we're going to be talking about today uh, with providence. Yeah. Before we dive into it, we just got to get the definition out there. What is divine providence? Divine providence is God's government of everything. That He is the one in control of the of His creation, and He is the one who has all things in His hands. It's related to a lot of other concepts like God's foreknowledge that he knows all things, also his that he foresees all things as well. But ultimately, uh, providence has to do with everything that happens comes to pass because of God. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting and important discussion. And like you say, it encompasses his omniscience, his omnipotence. You know, all of these attributes of God are, are really kind of tied up in providence because God is the supreme sovereign of all above the universe, above all things created. He is the one unmade being from which all things flow. Providence has been discussed and debated a lot throughout the history of the church and really the history of the world, because other religions have these discussions too. To what degree is their God or gods, you know, in in charge of, of something? Do you think that this is an important discussion for us to have again? Oh, of course. When we're dealing with the question of providence, we're also dealing with the question of why things happen the way that they do. And so there is a very practical question of, you know, why do things happen in my life and why do they happen in this way? And so when we're talking about God's providence and God's control of all things, we are talking about an extremely practical subject that has to do with our daily lives. Right. And it's it's funny, people really bristle at the idea of God being in control they don't seem to have too much of a problem with an invisible hand, say, when it's being espoused by Adam Smith, and it has to do with, you know, magic <laughs> in commerce or something like that, you know, sort of these unspoken laws that allegedly govern everything. But when it comes to the one true God, that is a prospect that surely frightens a lot of people, if, if not at least make them mildly uncomfortable. Well, if nothing else, because we're okay with the idea of God being in control of most things. We're okay with God being in control of, say, the weather for the most part. We're okay with the idea of God being in control of most things in my life. But the idea that he's completely in control of all things can be a bit unsettling at times. 
because we misunderstand what providence is. Right. And we're going to get into that discussion, you know, when we talk about fatalism and those sorts of things and these sort of competing views within Christendom as far as how God knows things, for example, or more specifically how and why he ordains certain things that come to pass. Or more properly said, all things that come to pass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, let's dive right in, folks, and talk about God's governing of all things. First and foremost, God does control creation. So the physical realm is part of God's providence. His providence over the physical realm, over nature, is because he is the creator. Okay, so he didn't just, he's not a watchmaker God, sorry, Paley, who just wound things up, set them in motion, and then just let it go. No, that's, no, providence is that he's still in perfect control of his creation and all things that come to pass, even down to the smallest details. And I think a great passage for talking about this comes from Matthew chapter 10. And I just want to read this here for you real quick. Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. So even if the birds themselves are under God's providence, Jesus says, then you certainly, as the crown of his creation, are a special part of his concern. What would you say then to the person who objects and says, well... You know, that's not really speaking to God really ordaining the birds. It's just saying that he, he knows them, that he just has a knowledge of them. But then it says, but, but not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's not, that, it's not that he knows when they fall. He knows that too. Right. But that they fall to the ground. I mean, how, how would you word it? Apart from him, there would be no falling. Right. So one of the concepts we would have to talk about would be contingency. Okay, Mm -hmm. so these contingencies, what causes one thing to happen as a result of another thing? God is the ultimate contingent. Okay, there are no contingencies without the first mover of all things. Does that mean God kills every sparrow that falls from the sky? No. You know, what what ultimately kills a sparrow? I don't know. Sparrow diabetes, uh, sparrow (laughs) heart disease, whatever. The baby gun. Right. The natural contingency of that, all part of God's providence kills it, but it's still here, God, who has raised these creatures up. And he doesn't raise them up simply as classes. He raises them up as individual creatures. And Jesus is very specific when he talks about this, because he talks about the numbering of hairs on your head and everything. God's knowledge here, which is where he would be counting these things like that, you know, these things he knows, is not just a bare knowledge. God knows because he has made or he has moved. God knows because he is God and omniscience is part of his being. That's the question, though. What's the context here? What's the context that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 10? He's telling them to not fear those in the world who are able to kill the body, but not able to kill the soul. He tells them then to fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny how commonly people say, oh, he's talking about the devil. Uh, no, he's talking about God here. So think more highly of God. Why? Because God is this powerful and he has this kind of knowledge of you. But more than that, he has this kind of providential care for his creation. And in, and in addition to that, the men whom we would have to suffer in this life 
would not have that power apart from God. Right. Not even not even the devil has the power to assault us apart from the will of the Lord. Right. Allowing and, it to happen. I mean, you see that in Job clearly, which we'll we'll discuss in a minute. You see it in Romans thirteen. You see it when Jesus talks to Pilate. All authority is derived from God because God has given it. And Jesus is talking about this in the context of wicked Jews and violent Romans. And yet here he says you would have no authority. Paul is speaking of a pagan Roman government in Romans 13, yet they are God's ministers, according to Paul's theology, because God has raised them up. And you can already start to see, folks, why this is an uncomfortable conversation, because what does that say? When we think about worldly rulers, we don't tend to think about good kings and benevolent kings or presidents or state representatives or small town city mayors. We tend to think about the corrupt ones, the evil ones. Would we say then that they just sort of came up as a fluke? I know I'm getting like we're 10 minutes in and I'm already asking the really the really hard questions and I'm expecting Zelman to answer them. <laughs> no, it, it's an important question because when we also talk about God's control over things like nature, then we have to ask the question, well, what about natural disasters mm-hmm. and, and those kinds of things? Well, yes. God is in control of these things. And that's what makes this such a, well, as you called it, an uncomfortable discussion. Because we like it when things are going well. But we sometimes think that, oh, well, God didn't do something when something bad happens. We may not understand the reasons why God does what he does. But all things are under his hand. Right. People seem to think of it in terms of of you know biblical images which is a kind of it's a good place to start obviously but people see a flood today or an earthquake and they think of Noah with the flood or the rebellion at Korah with the earthquake or I don't know particularly a ghastly meteor shower maybe maybe they think of Sodom I don't know but <laughs> but then they connect it like it's a one to one thing a lot of providence indeed most of providence is something we're not privy to know. It's part of God's privy counsel. It's the it's the hiddenness of God. We know that God rules, and yet we are not given inside knowledge into how the mind of God works. We know things that primary mo- primarily motivate him, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit when we talk about some of the practical implications. And we know that God is motivated by grace, the primacy of grace. We know that God is motivated by love for his creation, which we've already touched on a little bit. But some of these specifics, that's where people really want these answers, and God doesn't give specific answers in most situations. But can we say then that God only, say, sends bad weather or good weather when the Bible says so? No, there there are general passages like Psalm 65, which talk about this, which talk about God having this general providence over crops and, and weather, or rain in that case. Mm-hmm. And so do we want yeah. to take a look at that? Want to take a look at Psalm 65, 7 to 13? Yep. Yeah, no. Well, actually, I'm going to start at 9 here. The psalmist says, You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. And it continues on in this strain that God gives the bounty in this sense. The harvest would not come apart from God's providence. So 
the control of, of God, yes, is not just the good. I mean, as we've been emphasizing, it's also the bad. But we also want to emphasize that when we have the good things, that is as much God's providence as anything. And it's not as if, you know, like you said, we, we want to focus on the bad and talk about, you know, why all the difficult things. But we can't forget that God's control also, like you said, extends to his grace towards his creatures, even those who are wicked. You know, he causes his son to rise on the just and the unjust alike. Yeah, absolutely. There, There is every measure of grace in the world that we don't often see. When we talk about grace only through the lens of justification or only through the lens of, say, personal salvation, then we, we miss the grace of things like food and rain and the air that we breathe, clothing, shelter. You know, all, all of these so-called first article gifts are actually these general graces that God has has given people, this common grace. That is evidence, just further evidence. Obviously, the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate evidence. Mm-hmm. But every day, there are new graces and, and more evidence of, of God's providential grace in the lives of nearly all of his creation. Even in the midst of famine and war, there is still some measure of God's grace. Because he hasn't rained his wrath down on us that day, there's still some measure. And there's nothing that we receive that we've earned or that we deserve, but that all of these things are given to us purely out of God's grace and in God's providence. I was going to save this passage for a little bit later, but I think it fits in really well here. Amos chapter 4, because we're talking about God and what he's doing through his graces. We should also recognize that Yes, God gives us the harvest, God gives us the increase, and it is a gift. It's not our right, it is. it comes from his gracious hand. And if he were to cause the, har- the harvest to fail, for example, well, in that case, then, he has a purpose. And Amos, I think, has a very good example of that. Amos 4, verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest, and I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. And his point here, and I mean, it goes on for quite a while. I mean, Amos is a great book. His point is that God causes these things to happen, in this case, famine and a failure of harvest, in order to call his people back to himself, to help them to realize, well, that they don't live except by every word that comes from the mouth of God and every and every gift that he has given to them. You want to add to that? or No, no, it's very... Very good, and good to see Amos getting some love. Uh, we here at A Word Fitly Spoken endorse and heartily recommend the reading of Amos. <laughs> well, the Bible in general. The Bible yeah, in general, but you know, get into the lesser known ones. <laughs> so there's the physical realm. We could talk more, but, you know, we've hammered this point a lot. You know, Job. Uh, Job's a very interesting one. And in Job's rebuke, you get God really defending his own providence. Job suffers, you know, all this terrible evils befall him. And maybe we should do that for those who aren't familiar. So the story of Job. Zelwyn, do you want to give a quick uh, recap? 
Yeah, Job was a righteous man who lived in the East. And uh, one day, uh, Satan comes up to God and says, Job really only fears you because you've been so nice to him. And if you if you let bad things happen to him, well, then he's going to curse you to his face. And so God allows, and I emphasize allows, Satan to go and to test and to take away things from Job. His family gets taken away from him, except for his wife. His servants get taken away from him. His cattle gets taken away from him. And eventually he actually suffers horrific diseases. And then his friends come and try to console him. And they think that he's done something evil. They think that he deserves this because he's done something bad. But Job defends himself and says, no, I haven't done anything. But it's when Job finally says that God must answer to him that God comes and speaks in starting in chapter 38. After all of this happens and before everything is um, given back to him uh, more abundantly than before, Job essentially asks, why? Why did this happen? It's really common among the sort of goth, misanthropic Christians to say, and God doesn't answer him. But God absolutely answers Job in the clearest (laughs) way possible. Saying, were you there when I made all of this? And and God doesn't just say it uh, succinctly. He 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 really belabors the point so that mm-hmm. so that Job understands that who are you to question me when I am the one who has made and done all of these things? So God's answer to Job, who's demanding an answer, is well, no, uh, you don't have the right to do that. Would you say he's forgetting his place as a creature? Is that a, yeah, a fair yeah, way? Yeah, he's he's breached protocol here. <laughs> we don't we aren't privy to that kind of information. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, sometimes we think if we had just, you know, the the red phone line into to God's office or something like that, then you know, we'd really have it all figured out. But no, that's that's not it at all. We don't have to think that God is somehow being evil or malicious cuz he's not. God is not evil. His control of all things means that he's taking care of us. Yes, it may not be the way that we think that we should be taken care of, just like Job probably didn't think he deserved to suffer any of those things. But ultimately, God is doing what is the best for us, even if we don't understand it at the time. And keep in mind, we are just barely scratching the surfaces on the number of scripture passages that deal with this you know, on the comfort it derives and all of these other things. So there, we could do, a, we could do hours and hours more on this as, as well. So if you're following along, you know, take note of these passages and maybe we'll put some, some of them in the show notes. Um, and just take a look at it. Let the Bible speak for itself. Let the Holy Spirit speak through his word. And you'll start to see that these things become much, much more clear. Now, we aren't simply discussing this for the sake of stretching our brains here. If we don't properly understand the nature of God, then we we are really on a very shaky foundation. We have to understand God as he has revealed himself. And there will be tensions here, as we're going to discuss. There will be tensions between things we see in the world and what the Bible says and how we reconcile these things in our minds and in our hearts. What is the Christian to do then? The Christian then is to trust in the word and cling to what it says. 
And the again, you know, I, I alluded to uh, Jesus earlier, and we certainly will talk about this <laughs> Jesus a lot more um, in the next segments. But you know, ultimately, we are not. This is not a law. This is this is the this is the God of the Scriptures, who yes controls everything. Okay, who rules everything? He is also the King who loves His creation perfectly and loves His domain perfectly. So He is not arbitrarily doing things. But we've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history, www.wordfitlyspoken.org. This is A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, talking about divine providence. We spent the last segment sort of talking about divine providence in general using more general things, moved into Job a little bit, which is pushing us more and more into God in history. And does God's providence extend to the lives of men? Certainly true in the case of Job, but true in the case of everyone. So we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 17. Okay. Um, I want to read verse 26 in particular, because I think this really gets to the point. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. Can can you go ahead and read 27 and and 28? (laughs) You want to keep going? Okay. Because I like it. Okay. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Yeah. You just you just wanted Greek poets. I didn't want Greek poets. When they're right, they're right. In him we live and move and have our being, which is a clear expression of, of God's providence in, in creation and raising up of creation. But let's zoom in on verse 26, Z. Yeah, so, I mean, we talked about how God has control over nature at some length, and now we're trying to emphasize that that applies also to the lives of men and also to the lives of nations, because a nation would not exist apart from God's providence. Jesus tells Pilate that he would have no authority over him unless it came to him from above. But it's not limited to just authority. It's also, as it says here in Acts, the very boundaries of their dwelling place. Yeah, that's a little bit controversial, <laughs> that borders are <laughs> are established by God. Well, it sounds, it sounds kind of weird to us because we think of borders as being somehow, you know, artificial or vague or, you know, just man-made. Right, until it's the gate to our property or our front doors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but what, he, what Paul is emphasizing here is that uh, the dominion which an ex- which a nation exercises over a particular territory, you know, over you know where its boundaries are, comes from God. It's not just might makes right, or the, the strongest one has all the marbles, or something like that. No, this is a case of when things happen in history, 
they happen because God is doing it. He's moving. Everything is moving towards his predetermined plan, his predetermined goal. Which would be? The, the parousia, the end of all things. The end of all uh, Christ things, right. returning to glory. Right, and claiming his own. Yeah, because he is the king of kings. And the king, the king of all, those who are, those who are justified and, and those who are damned, all bow the knee at the, in the end of days. Because he mm-hmm. is sovereign. He is the sovereign. He is the king. I think we should also point out here in Acts 2, though, it also says with the allotted periods, mm-hmm. the birth of a nation and the death of a nation are also in the hands of God. And I yes. think a, a great passage for that would be, let's see, would that is that Deuteronomy here? Yeah, Deuteronomy 32.8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. And also, going back to Job briefly. Yeah, Job, not to put too fine a point on it, but yeah. Job 23, <laughs> he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Yeah, so God has also the birth and also the end of nations in his hands. It was he who raised up the Babylonians to chastise his people. It was he who brought the Babylonians down for the sins that they, they, they committed against Israel by the hand of Persia. Uh, these things are not historical accidents. A Christian cannot, in good conscience, say that things just happen willy-nilly in history. I resent that idiom. <laughs> it was it was fully intentional, Willie. <laughs> but a, a Christian understanding of of history is a recognition that God is is doing all things for his purposes, even raising up those nations which never confess his name. Right. And he even, you know, he even brings down Israel itself you know, the Babylonian captivity, you know, to humble them. Uh, Yet the purpose that he had in the covenants established with them still being the coming of the one man, Jesus Christ, for their indiscretions, he he makes them low. You have something similar that happens in AD 70. After, you know, Jesus is crucified, ascends, year AD 70 comes, the temple is destroyed, uh, prophesied in the New Testament. So here is God, here is God working, working, and and even though there are evil men throughout history, they still are operating under his providence. That brings us to yet more difficult questions then. If he's dealing with men in history, that means he's dealing with men. <laughs> you know, he's dealing right. with, with us as intelligent beings. So what does that say then? If, if a person commits evil, can he say God made me do it in his providence? Could Pharaoh, when persecuting the Hebrews say, God has made me do this, so it's not my fault. Can those who betrayed Jesus, you know, escape culpability? Well, Peter's uh, Acts sermons certainly seem to declare no. Absolutely not. The evil that men do belongs to them proper. The, the evil of, of men does not belong to God. And we have this in the case of, of Pharaoh, for example. Why is Pharaoh's heart hardened? Because of his sin. Yeah, because of his sin, and so that he would not believe. I will harden his heart. Mm-hmm. Okay, he has become so sinful, he is now a vessel of wrath fitted for destruction. For God's purposes, though. For God's purposes, and I want to and I want to make this very clear: if you don't have God operating in this way, what you are left with is a world with simply 
purposeless evil permitted. And I don't think it's enough to say that that evil is simply permitted, as if there's no grander purpose beyond that. Purposeless evil that, that is somehow not going to be recompensed, or there's not going to be some payoff here. Now, for most things, it's not going to be as grand as the parting of the Red Sea and the drowning of Pharaoh's army. But in every instance of evil that has not been forgiven, what do you have? God's judgment made manifest over them so that God's justice might be known. Mm-hmm. And I know people are starting to get a little, you know, I can feel kind of the tension, right? Everybody's starting to get a little uncomfortable here, but we really have to dig into this. So let's take a look then at Genesis 50. This is going to be Genesis 50. This is Joseph. Brothers sell him into slavery. He goes through all kinds of hardships. So I think we can all agree that selling your brother into slavery is an evil act. You know, we'll put up up a survey monkey or something and see (laughs) what you guys say. But but come on, you know, they didn't kill him, so it's the lesser of two evils, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So here, let's look at, we're going to look at like 18 through 21. His brothers, Joseph's brothers, also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. So now, Cliff's Notes version, Joseph has, um, although sold uh, as a slave, has now risen up and now he's in a position of power. So his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now there is a kernel of truth uh, concerning providence and for really all things. But first, let's just look at this. What has happened? You meant this for evil. You you meant to commit evil. You intentionally did it. You purposed to commit evil, my brothers. Mm-hmm. But God meant it for good, that he should accomplish his will. So you have two things clearly affirmed here. They did their own evil from their own hearts and their own sinful desires, right? Mm-hmm. And yet God has used this. Now, the ultimate example of God using evil for good be the cross. will be the cross. Because these men who betray Jesus, and it does primarily seem to be primarily seems to be the one who, the ones who who betray him, um, that, that hold the greater culpability. They are not off the hook for what they've done. They have committed a great sin, and you get this in the sermons and acts. This Jesus Christ, whom you've crucified, and so on, and, and Stephen's sermons, and, or Stephen's sermon, I should say. But what comes about the salvation of the world through this horrendous act? Why it's a kangaroo court, he's turned over, all of this stuff happens, and yet God purposes to work through this. And it wasn't an accident. It wasn't as if all of a sudden Jesus is is handed over to the Romans and the father says, Oh, whoa, I gotta I gotta make life gave me lemons, I gotta make lemonade. Uh, he's not merely reacting to what has happened, but this is something that has been prophesied, has been foretold. Even in the case of Judas, Judas is the first to betray I mean, he he hands him over or betrays him with a kiss, and what does Jesus say about him? I mean, this was prophesied, and Jesus says it's better for him that he not be born, because he is still guilty of the evil that he's committed. All that being said, and looking at Genesis, that or Pharaoh but in Exodus, and who gets discussed more in Romans 9, what then do we make of this, Selwyn? What do we do with this tension? Yeah, what do we do with it? Well, we have to let the tension stand, for one thing, but we also have to recognize that 
yes, God's control also extends over those difficult areas of our life. And God is able to turn great evil into great good for his purposes. But I think it's worth pointing out at this point that we sometimes make providence into a softer, gentler kind of providence so that we don't have to deal with these questions. The idea that God is, well, you know, he's in control, but something awful happened and God just kind of reacts to it and he sent his son as a reaction to it and God's right there with us. Yeah, yeah, and and he's kind of suffering with us because he didn't see this coming. Well, he knew it was coming, but he's not going to do anything. We end up with a practical deism, and I think that's fair. I think it's fair to it's a fair accusation. A lot of people want to default to uh, like a, a sort of a weak deism where God is mostly away from his creation. He's kind of walked away until I get something good. You know, then like I get a good parking space. So that's God being active somehow. <laughs> <laughs> or something bad happens and that's and that's God dropping the ball by not being there. And there have been many attempts to reconcile God's providence and human freedom throughout church history. And that's where we get some of these weaker attempts. So there's going to be one group that just simply says God chooses to do everything solely based on foreknowledge. Okay, so, or God doesn't even choose based on foreknowledge. He just has foreknowledge, and so that's how he knows what's going to happen. That's what prophecy is. God looking and seeing the future and then telling us what the future is going to be. Because he sees it, and only because he sees it. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we're saying. It's much stronger than that. Well, that's no God at all. Oh, right, it's a seer at best. <laughs> yeah. If he's just got a, if he's just, you know, a couple hours ahead on his Netflix or something like we are. <laughs> right. You know, that's that's not God being in Yeah, control. God's in the first time zone on New Year's Eve. And so <laughs> now one of the things that's become, that's grown more popular in evangelical circles, but has that has been popular in Roman Catholic circles for some time, is what is called Molinism. Uh Molinism. Uh, do you wanna you wanna unpack that a little bit? You think it's worth talking about for a few minutes? Yeah, no, it is worth talking about, although I think it's gonna be difficult to define quickly. So Molina his his idea that was that God knows all possibilities, right? I mean, so go ahead and chip into this wherever you want. You know, yep, you're off to a great start. Uh, God knows all the possible choices that we could make, and he's and therefore he's going to. I mean, how would you put it? He's he chooses based on those possibilities. Yeah, he essentially how, chooses the best of all possible options. Mm-hmm. He looks through and he says, "I've seen five thousand different options and this is going to be the best one to accomplish what I want. But here's the thing, the the primary purpose of Molinism or what is often called middle knowledge. So a, a lot of Jesuits believe this, probably still do if they believe anything. And um, <laughs> William Lane Craig would be a famous evangelical who holds to this middle knowledge position. And it's called middle knowledge simply because of that. God sort of sees so far in these options and then he chooses the best situation wherein you freely make the choice to do whatever. The -hmm. purpose of Molinism is to affirm the free will of man as primary. It gives primacy to to man's volition. And that caused a big debate in Roman Catholicism during the Counter-Reformation era. The Thomists, on the other hand, which you can still be in Rome today, you can be either one of these, you know, Rome's cool like that. The Thomists <laughs> say no. 
No, no, no. You don't start with the free will of man. You start with grace. You start with God's grace and grace as the primary motivator, the primacy of grace. And if you start with grace, then you have God who is ordaining everything, especially when it comes to salvation, the salvation of men's souls. When you start with grace, then you must have God providentially acting. Otherwise, it's not grace. And the roots of this can go back to Augustine. The roots of Thomism go to Augustine and, you know, we'll get hate mail for that, but it is what it is. So now Thomism, obviously named for St. Thomas Aquinas, as a term is much later than Thomas because it's a it's a post-Reformation kind of term. When, when you're talking about Molinism versus Thomism, okay, as, yeah, as, as yeah, it's espoused yeah. there. The Reformation places great stress upon God's providence mm-hmm. because part of the Reformation is a rediscovery of Augustine. And why is Martin Luther so into Augustine? Or why does he sound so similar to Augustine? Maybe because he's an Augustinian monk? I mean, that's, I mean that, that is one. That is true. But also true. because Augustine looks at the scriptures and lets them speak in the way that they speak. Mm-hmm. To, kind of, to kind of bring things around then again, where, where Molina wants to emphasize, like you said, the, the free will of man and make that primary, he kind of wants to have it both ways, and that's why there's there's so so much of a difficulty here. Yeah, because he still wants to maintain providence by saying God picks. God has like the last vote, so it's ultimately God doing it. <laughs> but it's always man acting first. Yeah, so God steps in at an intermediate time and says, okay, this, then we're going to do this. I know yep. what you're going to do, so this is what we're going to do. And so this is what we're actually going to do. It's like taking your kid out. And he's a feral child, and you know he's going to run crazy. So before we leave the house, I want to put a leash on you or strap you in a papoose, as men want to do today. And uh, you or, know. Or, or, you know, get letting your child choose, but very carefully, you know, framing the question. Yeah, you know, yeah you can have carrots, you can have broccoli, kid. You can pick which one you want. But this, but the, what we're trying to emphasize here is that ultimately, because man is in control in Molina's system, that is why it's still a weakened form of providence. And that's why we can't ultimately accept it, because that's not what the scriptures say. God is the one who controls all things. God is the one, as you said earlier, moves first. We would not be able to move. You know, in him we live and move and have our being, to to go back to Acts. We would not be able to do anything apart from God coming to us first. Right. And it's made all the more abundantly clear. And we've done several podcasts now on fallen man and man's fallen nature. You can't depend upon the system like Molinism if you agree with what the scripture says about man in his sinful state. Mm-hmm. If you agree with the Bible that we're dead in our trespasses and sin, a dead man is not going to choose any of the options that are good. God must move with his grace first. The grace of God is a necessity. And if we say the grace of God is a necessity for like man's conversion, then we have to believe that God is acting providentially to save. Now we'll do future episodes, you know, just on salvation. But I mean, just looking at Romans eight, and you know, and how men are saved, you know, the whole epistle of Romans, and there's no grounds by which any man can boast because salvation is purely of grace, and you cannot understand grace correctly without some measure of providence. Because grace is, is, is this unmerited favor. Grace is, is what is given by God to enable us to believe. I mean, grace encompasses a lot more than just that, of course. But you need that grace. That grace is, is necessary. God must providentially move to give you grace. Otherwise, you're 
you're dead in your trespasses and sins. So with that thought, we'll talk about it more right after the break. We'll be back in just a few moments. A word fitly spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all his fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi, continuing our discussion of divine providence. We've talked about God in history. We've talked about God in, in general. And now let's take a specific look then at God as providentially caring for life, or as providential over life and death. Yeah, and I think we have some important passages, such as Psalm 90, uh, which is an important one, uh, starting at verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Mm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great passage. Uh, calling us to, you know, be wise in in light of our impending death, which is blessed in the sight of the Lord for those who are his saints, of course, you know, from Revelation. But God determines our end. God determines when we will die. Mm -hmm. That is also part of his providence. I mean, we don't like to think of it in those terms. We we sometimes like to think, you know, again, you know, that reacting kind of God, uh, that God sort of sees this happening and he's been there before. But in reality, our days are in his hand. Yeah, and it, it's important, you know, this is a psalm of Moses. And mm -hmm. Moses has a grasp of God's providence probably more profound than, you know, most people certainly who've ever lived. He's seen it beforehand. He's, he's actually seen, you know, we were talking about Pharaoh earlier. Moses mm -hmm. has seen this happen. He's seen it carried it out. Moses understands that all of these things are in the Lord's hands. Mm -hmm. And he, he is certainly someone to to listen to and to heed, uh, for he has been there and he understands this. Moses is, is a very clear example, though, of God ending one's days. Because, right. Because Moses, yeah. as punishment, is not allowed to see the promised land. As a, I mean, this is God, you know, God punishing him. Yeah, we're told very specifically that Moses died while he was still very strong and very vigorous, pretty much still in his prime. So it's very much that God took him away and was in control of his of his days. I just want to throw a couple other passages out there just to kind of frame the discussion. One briefly from Second uh, Kings chapter 20, where King Hezekiah becomes sick and Isaiah comes in and tells him that the Lord says, set your house in order for you shall die, you shall not recover. That's a passage we could go on for a long time because there's a lot going on there. But the point is, is that apart from any other consideration, and, and God does ultimately change some things, Hezekiah would not be able to change that judgment. And we can't change our judgment either. We're not privy to, you know, saying, oh, you know, I got a few more days now. 
Um, that's not our place. God is the one who knows when our last day will come. And also then from Luke 12, verse 20, just to kind of, again, frame this a little bit before we can talk about it a little bit more generally. This comes from the parable of the rich fool when God says to the fool that this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Mm. Yeah, he's not able to change the fact that his his doom has come, his judgment has come, and the, the end of his days is there. We're not in control of our days. God knows what our days will be. You want to add to that? No, no, I think you hit the nail on the head there. So then life and death, so this discussion with life and death then certainly extends then to man's uh, salvation and man's justification. So does the Bible speak then about that? Oh, of course. Does the Bible <laughs> speak about justification? Yeah, so if, if we don't even have control over when we will be born or when we will die, we certainly don't have control over whether we'll be saved. Salvation does not come from men. Salvation comes from God. Do you want to look at Isaiah 45? So Isaiah 45, 5 to 7, English Standard Version. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Yeah, uh, God making well-being or making good and also creating calamity, or I think, doesn't the, uh, as you call it, the inspired uh, translation, call it evil? Calls it evil, yeah. To say that God creates evil, by which we, we mean, though, that God is the one who ultimately brings judgment as well, because judgment has been handed, it belongs to him and has been handed to Christ, and also that God is the one who brings about our salvation. Apart from him, there is no salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which we will be saved other than that of Jesus Christ. And it's not a matter of the will, but that God has come to us and has made us his own. And I don't think you have any clearer picture of God making the faithful his own as you do in Romans 8. And there's 8.28, but then you really got to go through 29 and 30 to get the whole picture. So Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, a lot of people stop right there because it fits on a T-shirt or on a paperweight, and it's good <laughs> and comforting. And, and you should like that verse. You should absolutely adore that verse. But it goes on. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So these men whom God has purposed to save will be saved. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. From first to last, salvation is of God's grace. And part of God's providence. Yeah, and if, if we're going to believe in a weak providence, too, then we'd have to say that God wouldn't be able to really save us. Right. If God can't kick in the door of our hearts and come in and, and change things so that he's going to save us, then he's, he's not God at all. Right. 
Paul's going to make a very similar argument to this, or at least, you know, when he has a very good response to men's objections, you know, the natural objections that come up, you know, why can't I blame God then if this happens to me or whatever, or why isn't my evil God's, God's fault? And if you want to know the answer to that, check out the rest of Romans 8 and read all of Romans chapter 9. <laughs> a, a favorite passage around here. <laughs> but, it, but it is true. And, and we backstep away from this and we lose so much. We, we're so, uh, we in, in the general sense have been so concerned. We, we become kind of like Molinists. And I believe one time you told me that a lot of people find themselves to be practical Molinists. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you mean by that that they really want to put God's grace and providence at arm's length and really want to put the free will of man at the forefront of everything. Yeah, and I, I don't and I don't think, like you say, we don't think we do it intentionally. Uh, we're not trying to to make God's providence at length, but that's why we've been emphasizing that God's providence is not weak. It is not this this comfortable just the way I like it and no further. Because then, yeah, we do become practical Molinists. Then we do try to make what our will is doing the primary driving factor. But God is God, and we aren't. I mean, there are just passage after passage after passage of Scripture that, that deal with salvation as coming purely from God. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and he that comes to me I will not cast out. I mean, all, all sorts of things about salvation coming from God alone. And again, if we have a weak view of providence, then that grace doesn't really make much sense. Mm-hmm. Then salvation just becomes, that, then that understanding just becomes like any other world religion. Yeah. If God's providence is weak, as I'm just trying to emphasize this again, then justification becomes an act of our will, that we have to act first before God is going to, to, to act and then, you know, kind of pick up the slack. Right. But that's obviously not the case. Now, some would say then that that we're leaning towards fatalism here, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Fatalism is just sort of kind of a bare determinism, and it kind of brings us back to almost the purposeless evil there. You you have something of this concept in certain schools of Islam, to where Allah just doesn't react to anything. He's impenetrable, and we would say that God is impenetrable, but but in a different way, so that he Mm -hmm. just, no matter what you do, you can pray and, and fast and do all of these things, but at the end of the day, salvation is kind of arbitrary because it's a fatalistic system. We still recognize these things. Who is saved? The one who believes. I mean, you know, putting as yeah. basic a spin on it as we can. <laughs> well, okay, so the one who has faith in Christ, the one who believes in Christ, will be saved. Okay, now, this isn't the podcast on justification, so we're not going to unpack that any further, but that's we get it, Okay. In a fatalistic system, that's not necessarily the case. In a fatalistic system, you could have faith, and you could have a lot of good works too, but ultimately you don't really know because, well, it's already been determined and it, it really has nothing to do with anything. It's going to happen no matter what you do, and even if you piled it on, not that salvation comes from us, of course, no. but like you said, you could have a, a living faith and still go to hell if it was a purely fatalistic kind of system. And in the Christian system, in the Christian system, not in a fatalistic system, what you do and say does matter. Your will actually does matter. The good things you do and the bad things you do still, you know, cause things to happen, even in a, even if we're just talking in an earthly sense. But God listens to our prayers. God answers our prayers. 
And yet our prayers and, and God's answering them are still part of his providence. God still wills that. And again, now we're caught in that mystery, though, of, well, how is that possible? How does that work? Well, the scriptures affirm both, so we stand on both. We stand on both mm-hmm. sides because the scripture does. Never mistake providence for something that would negate prayer. If anything, providence affirms prayer mm-hmm. because God has the power to actually do things according to his will, of course. But if you don't believe in a providential God, if you believe in a God who is absent, per se, let's say, or if you believe in a God who doesn't really want to interfere, then why would you pray? If you really believed that free will or that the will in general was the ultimate arbiter of anything, then you then praying would almost be a sin. Sure. Because God, as some say, can't violate someone's will. But anytime you're praying for someone to be converted, you're praying that God would change that person's heart. Which is another way of saying you're praying that God would give that person a new will and a new mind. Mm-hmm. So really, I think people affirm it more than they realize. Because who, what Christian has not prayed for someone who was lost? has not prayed for someone who needs to know Christ. Nearly every Christian in the world has, at one point or another, if not every day. Sure. And what are they again? What are they praying for? That God would override someone's will. So deep down, the Christian really knows this is true. <laughs> Their behavior <laughs> kind of shows it. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny. It's funny how that works. Sometimes you say one thing and you actually believe another. <laughs> right. But right. I think, but I think maybe to kind of bring this somewhat to a close and maybe to emphasize the the purpose of talking about all of this is we don't want to just think that oh we're talking about god being in control and we're thinking of god as this well i mean this is where the fatalism comes in you know this cold distant deity who's just kind of controlling all things no the purpose of understanding god's providence is understanding that when we know that God is in control of all things, we know that whatever happens to us, we are still with God. Whatever happens in our lives, good or bad, nothing is going to separate us from God. And God is in control of all things so that even if we have to go through dark periods in our lives, even if we have to bear the cross, we know that he is still going to accomplish his will and his purposes in time and in history. Right. And God, as we've said so many times this through this hour, is not cold and he is not distant. The Christian is an adopted child of the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. We call God Father, and we mean it. He is our loving Father, and a loving Father protects and guides his children. And protection and guidance is a picture of providence. He watches over us. He sees to it that our salvation is carried through. And he guides us through everything. He tells us what we ought to do. Points us back to where we need to go. Tells us what to look at. Puts words in our ears, his very own words, as any good earthly father would do. That's the opposite of a fatalistic God. This is a picture of a father. Yeah, because which God would you rather have? Would you rather have the weak providence kind of God, the God who's just kind of reacting to everything the way that we do and just kind of bumbling along, hoping for the best? And yeah, he can, he's got some pretty good power, but ultimately it catches him by surprise. He's, too. Yeah, he's more like the deadbeat dad who shows up for birthdays and Christmases with the cool presents every now and then, but you don't <laughs> see him the rest of the year. Yeah, exactly. Or. Would you rather, I, this is, again, just a hypothetical question. You understand me correctly. 
would you rather have the God who is not only in control of the, the very days of our lives, but he also is in control of the seas? He, he stills their roaring and stills their raging. He sets their boundaries. He's in control so that evil cannot go beyond its bounds. I mean, would you imagine trying to face this, you know, an evil that was somehow just kind of bubbling and breaking out and had no boundaries? What a what a living hell that would be. And yet here comes the God who can calm the waves, who can calm the storms, who can overcome any adversity and any evil and cannot be stopped. They have to listen to him. Right. He doesn't have to react to them. They have to listen to him. The waves and the, the, the sea have to calm at his, at his voice because he is the one who created them. He is the one who controls them. And with that, this has been another episode of A Word Fitly Spoken. May the Lord and his providence keep you. If you like what you've heard, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you and God bless.